Yeah, Susie says we're um, as Susie says we're looking at the next part of Colossians. So we've been doing Colossians for the last few weeks, I think, um, and we're now up to sort of Colossians one. That's fine. Colossians one um, twenty four to Colossians two verse five. Um, I will read that in a minute, but if you've got it in front of you, it's always useful to have. Um, now, m- one of my favourite TV comedies was, or is, Blackadder. I don't know if yeah, many of you have seen uh, Blackadder. And it's a historical comedy following this uh, person who, in certain series, is called Lord Blackadder, and in another one he's uh, different things, but basically follows the person Blackadder throughout history um, from the court of... Um, sort of medieval kings, Elizabeth I through the Georgian period into, and then the final series is, is him in the trenches in the First World War. And integral to the story of Blackadder was the constant need for a cunning plan. And it was usually to extract Blackadder from a scrape or a situation he found himself in. And his plans usually amounted to nothing, partly because he relied on the knowledge and information from his sort of hapless and... and less than intelligent sidekick, Baldrick. But behind the ridiculous nature of a sort of TV comedy, there belies the truth. As we find ourselves in situations, if we get ourselves in scrapes or in circumstances or settings, we look for a plan. How many times when we're facing an unknown situation do the words, we just need a plan, get uttered? Susie is fantastic at making lists If you look in our house, you'll see just bits of paper that will have times and stuff that needs doing. And that's making a plan in a situation that needs a plan. Because a plan helps guide our thoughts, it guides our intentions, our actions, and it sets out laterally the way that we should proceed. A plan sort of removes the emotion from a situation as it sort of states in black and white what we need to do. A plan can be easily communicated and passed on. A plan helps us do what we're meant to do. So as I said, over the past few weeks, we've been looked at the first chapter of Paul's letter uh, to the church in Colossae. Is it Colossae? How do people say it? Colossae. Okay, well, that's how I say it, so we're fine. Um, And how he began with sort of prayers of thanksgiving for the church and their faithful adherence to the gospel, then perhaps troubled by the things that he'd heard from his friend Epaphras, on how controversies and heresies had entered the church. Paul focuses on the person and the character of Jesus in the latter part of chapter one, laying out for his readers in title, The Supremacy of the Son of God. And there at the top is acting as almost a reminder at the top of the letter who it is that they are worshiping. The way Paul describes Jesus, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Goes to reaffirm to the Colossians that Jesus is what they need, and any searching to add to Jesus with external or dubious practices or beliefs will ultimately be fruitless. And so we arrive at our passage for this morning, Colossians 1, 24 to 2, verse 5. Um, it starts in verse 24. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. 
I've become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all energy, with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those in Laodicea and for all those who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom, all, in, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. That might not look like it from first glance, but I think in, the, in these 11 verses lies a plan or a blueprint for Christian living. This was the ultimate goal for Paul's letter to the Colossians. To encourage and support a church going down the wrong track, to come back to the teachings of Jesus and reject any additional complementary teachings that were circling the church at the time. The need for Paul to include a blueprint, I think, was of crucial importance. Depending on who you speak to, um, this letter to the Colossians was written most probably in sort of AD 60, AD 61, and most likely came from when Paul was in prison. I don't know, I've spoken about it before when we talked about Timothy perhaps earlier in the year. Um, but your mind is sharpened and your thoughts are focused if you think that the message you're giving might be the last message that you give. Paul wrote to the Colossians, I think, as if this message was the last message he was giving, <coughs> seeking to encourage them back to the established faith by setting out a plan and a blueprint to live in a life of faith in God. The relevance for us is that despite being written to the first century church in the Middle East, like all good plans, they still have relevance and they still work and can give us guidance and clarity in our own walk with Jesus. So the first point of this three-point plan, because all plans have three points, is that Paul firmly establishes that suffering and sacrifice are part and parcel of Christian living. Verses 24. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now Paul had first-hand experience of suffering and sacrifice. He was shipwrecked, imprisoned multiple times, faced backlash and criticism from pretty much everywhere that he went. And yet he did not just abide this suffering or put up with this suffering. He didn't soldier through it, he rejoiced in it. On the face of it, this can sort of be seen as almost a bit of a sadistic pleasure, sort of finding joy in the punishment that he's receiving. But it's qualified by Paul establishing that the joy is not derived from the punishment, 
but in the fact that he is suffering for the people in Colossae, in the same way that he suffered for the people of all the churches that he served. A friend of mine once asked me what I was passionate about, and I can't exactly remember how I replied, which probably isn't great, um, but I think I must, I must have said something like sport um, or some such other nonsense. And when he then explained that you will only truly suffer for the things that you're passionate about, I realised that my likes and my enjoyments were not the things that I was passionate about. Similarly, we can almost measure the love and care and passion Paul has and shares for the early church by how much he is prepared to suffer for it. Paul then writes in, uh, slightly further forward, he says, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, there's no getting away from this. This is a difficult verse. I think when you come to a difficult verse, the principle for interpretation is always interpret the difficult verse in light of the clear. Now, what that means is that the difficult verse will never contradict the clear verses. And it is clear both in Paul's writings and the entire New Testament that Christ's suffering on the cross was complete and sufficient for the salvation of all who trust in him. Jesus himself proclaimed just before he died in John, it is finished. The atonement that he gained for us was complete. A few weeks ago in Colossians, we would have read in Colossians 1, 12 to 14, Paul makes it clear that in Christ we have an inheritance. We have been rescued and transferred to the kingdom of Christ and we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In Colossians 2.10, jumping forward probably next week, Paul says, in him you have been made complete. He goes on to show that the death and resurrection of Christ resulted in all our sins being forgiven and in Christ's complete victory over the powers of darkness. Many other verses in Paul's writing, the book of Hebrews, could be piled up to show that in terms of salvation, nothing was lacking in Christ's sufferings. So this verse does not mean that somehow Christ's sufferings on the cross were insufficient for our salvation. So that Paul or anyone else, any one of us needed to complete it. Because Paul isn't talking necessarily about salvation here, but rather about service. The word as translated afflictions, afflictions is not used anywhere else in the New Testament in relation to Christ's sacrificial sufferings for our salvation. So Paul does not mean that the New Testament never teaches that in some way we, we by our suffering must add merit to Christ's sacrificial death. So what then does Paul mean by this statement? Well firstly Jesus taught that his followers must suffer because of their identification with him. He told the disciples in John 15, Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Jesus prophesied before, his, before he returned, there would be a time of unprecedented suffering for his followers. It's in Matthew 24. And in Revelation 6, um, slightly weird world, world of revelation the apostle John saw the martyrs in heaven who were crying out asking God how long would, the, would it be until their blood was avenged the Lord told them to rest for a little while longer until 
the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. So there is a sense in, a sense in which Christ's sufferings must be filled up or completed by his body, the church, before he returns. Because the church is his body, when any member suffers for his name, Jesus also suffers. And Paul had first-hand experience of that on the Damascus Road. When he persecuted the church, he persecuted Jesus himself. But viewing this verse not through the lens of salvation, but service, as we read it, it repositions us in the conversation. Instead of reading this verse and thinking we have anything to contribute to the suffering of Christ for our salvation, we can choose to ask the question, how am I suffering and sacrificing myself as a tribute to and continuation of the wondrous gift of salvation we've been given through the death and resurrection of Jesus? It reframes our thoughts as to how we view suffering and how we view our own suffering. Now, just as Paul was very clear that he rejoiced in his suffering for the sake of, the, of, of his body, the church, if we are following the plan set out by Paul, we too must distinguish the suffering we face as a result of living in a fallen world and the suffering we face as a result of serving Jesus and his church. Not every tribulation or trouble that we face is because of our service to the gospel. We live in a world where things go wrong. Enid's just spoken about all the things on a massive scale that are going wrong in the world. We live in a world where things go wrong. People die, illness spreads, jobs are lost, troubles will befall us. John Lewis, the African-American civil rights activist who didn't start the department store, wrote, never ever be afraid to make some noise and get in trouble, necessary trouble. Now John Lewis was talking about this from a civil rights activism point of view, but this differentiation between the troubles that might befall us, <coughs> or the ones that we might make for ourselves, and the good and necessary trouble that might, might find us as a result of serving Jesus and his church is really important to distinguish between. And we must ask ourselves, are we prepared to suffer and sacrifice for the furtherance of the gospel? Are we prepared to rejoice in the troubles that we face as a result of Jesus' name being known? That was point one, quite a heavy point. Point two. So in addition to establishing that suffering and sacrifice are part of the Christian faith journey, Point two of Paul's plan for Christian living can be found in verses 25 to 27. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And to me, point two is that Paul is establishing that the gospel requires living in and living out. 
In verse 25, Paul referred to himself as a servant of this gospel. Paul's service comes about because God has called him and called him, as the remainder of verse 25 says, to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Now take this as it is to you in the letter to the Colossians. The you here is the Gentiles living and worshipping in the church in Colossae. Acts 9.15 clearly states that Paul's commission from 9.15 says, This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. Paul was keenly aware of who had commissioned him, to whom he had been commissioned, and what he had been called to do. He was commissioned to make the word of God fully known. The mistruth that was swirling around the church in Colossae at the time depleted hope from Christ's followers by claiming the need for mystical knowledge and that only a few people could find it. When Paul wrote of making God's word fully known to all the believers, he was pointing out once again, as Paul did all the way through the letter, he's not necessarily saying anything new. He's bringing them back to things that they already know. And he's pointing out to them once again that God's word is for all people. They could have all the wisdom they needed to be saved and to grow in Christ. Verse 26 references the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. What is this mystery? Well, there are some things that God doesn't reveal to anyone. Deuteronomy 29 said, The Lord our God has secrets known to no one. Still other things were hidden within the Old Testament but have now been revealed in the New. The New Testament calls them mysteries. Paul's use of the word is not to indicate a sort of secret teaching or rite or ceremony that's only revealed to a few, but the truth that is revealed to all believers in the New Testament. This truth that has now been disclosed to the Lord's people is that which has been hidden from the past ages and generations. The congregation of Colossae was composed of Gentile believers. A Gentile was anyone who was not of sort of Jewish descent. And there had been animosity between the two. Jews refused to spend time with them if they could avoid it. Jews wouldn't eat with them, work with them, play with them. There are countless examples throughout scripture of the animos animosity between the Jews and the Gentiles. So when the early church started, it's no surprise that there were no Gentiles in the church. But after the church had established itself in Jerusalem, God moved Philip to share the good news with the Ethiopian eunuch. In Acts 9, God called Paul to take his message to the Gentiles. In Acts 10, God led the apostle Peter to the household of a Roman centurion, where all believed and all were baptised. As more and more Gentiles came to Christ, the apostles and church leaders met together to decide what to do about all the Gentiles coming to, coming to faith in Christ. They agreed that God was drawing them and giving them the Holy Spirit as they believed, and that they were acceptable just as they were. No circumcision required, no need to follow Jewish laws. What Paul was telling the Colossians was that there was something that these false teachers didn't understand. The, in verse 26, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, 
which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So that mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Of all the mysteries that God has revealed in the New Testament, the most profound is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Old Testament predicted the coming of the Messiah, but the idea that he would actually live in his church, made up of Jews and Gentiles, was new and revolutionary. The New Testament is very clear that Christ, by the Holy Spirit, takes a permanent residence in all believers. The gospel requires living in and living out. Christ living in us, the hope of glory, in the heart of all believers. But crucially, it is not a closed shop. The gospel exists for the benefit of all. The commission of Christ in our lives is that he is made known to everyone as the gift of salvation is available to everyone. So how might we understand more fully the reality of Christ living in us? How might we more fully understand the commission placed on us to take the gospel <coughs> to all people? We think back to what Enid was just talking about earlier. We're not, we can't put conditions on who the gospel is for. The gospel is for all people, available to all people. However bad or heinous or however despicable we think they might be, the gospel is available to all people. Maybe there's something in that is linked to our sacrifice and our suffering that we must sacrifice our own comfort in order to take the gospel to the people that we don't think are deserving of it. And so finally, having established in Paul's plan for Christian living, that suffering and sacrifice are part of Christian living and that the gospel is for living in and living out, Paul brings us back to the ultimate reminder and the underpinning of all of this, that it is only in Jesus that we find the truth. So chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. As an exhortation to the Colossians, but it's one that we can read, as still accurate to us as contemporary readers, is there will be those within and without the church who will try and convince us that they hold the answers to the problems that we face, that they possess the information that we need. But it is only in Jesus that we find that indisputable and unwavering truth. And here we take it back to what Paul was saying in chapter 1. We read what Paul said about Jesus as a supremacy of the Son of God. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The supremacy of the Son of God is beyond question. He is responsible for our very being. Looking back to for him, for in him all things were created. He came before all things, nothing existed before him, nothing after him. Through him we have the ultimate hope for our salvation through his death and resurrection. That phrase, in him all things hold together. He is in everything, around everything. There isn't a place where he is not. <clears throat> He is the cause for which we suffer and sacrifice for the furtherance of his kingdom. And yet he is also the balm and the comfort when hard times befall us. He is the indwelling God that gives our lives purpose and hope. And yet he is also the extended hand of invite to anyone who doesn't know him. He is the ultimate, the absolute, and he's the only one worth basing our entire life plan around. <clears throat> 